Welcome to We Are Chafee Looking Upstream, a conversational podcast of humanness, community, and well-being based in Chafee County, Colorado. I'm Adam Williams. Today I'm talking with Wendell Pryor. He retired not all that long ago as the executive director of the Chafee County Economic Development Corporation, though semi-retired seems like a more accurate description. I mean, Wendell has been working since he was six years old, growing up on a farm, and some habits, they just don't fade easily. We get into some interesting family stories from Wendell's early years. We talk about the shaping influences of those experiences. We talk about the role his train-hopping uncle played in the family way back in the day, and the role Wendell's family played in his worldviews as a child in the 1960s. We dig into his professional career, too, including his long history of public service in local government in a number of cities, and we get into his involvement in civil rights and his conscious decision to work for change from within the system rather than from outside it. Though he did have one particular protest of sorts, which, well, I don't know if it was exactly rebellion, but it did get his father's attention. We also talk about the roots of social issues in the country today and some foundational changes that we need to make to turn things in a more positive direction. We talk about curiosity, resilience, and inclusivity, and the internet, which is no small matter in a rural place like where we live and connect here in central Colorado. And Wendell had a hand in establishing those technologies in a more meaningful and necessary and lasting way, which I can say affects me and my household directly, and even my ability to be here doing this podcast, actually. Wendell and I cover a lot of ground in this conversation, from a two-room schoolhouse in the front range of Colorado, to Germany, to the Bay Area, and ultimately back here to Chafee County, which Wendell clearly appreciates for its richness of intellectual capital, community, and opportunity. Show notes and the transcript from today's conversation are posted at wearechafee.org. If you are listening to this show on a podcast player, like on Apple or Spotify, and you want to help us to spread the good of what we're doing here, you can rate and comment on the show on your player. It really is helpful. The We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast is a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority, and it's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. Now, here we go. My conversation with Wendell Pryor. So is it true that you went to high school in Germany, Wendell? Yes, I graduated from an American-dependent high school in Germany in the late 60s. Okay, so tell me more about that. I mean, how did that come to be? Why, why were you there for high school? Well, my dad was a civil servant at Lowry Air Force Base in Aurora, which is where I was raised, and uh, decided to take a tour of duty in the mid-60s to Germany, where he uh, landed and fought in World War II. So he wanted to go back and uh, basically explore some of uh, what uh, he helped defend and, uh, you know, uh, visit. Wow, that okay. So was he you say he landed. Was he in the army? Was he paratrooper? What what are we talking about? He here? was in the army and my understanding and don't quote me on this is that he was part of that group that landed on Omaha Beach in France and went up th- uh through France into I guess it would be southern Germany and Bavaria. Okay. So some real serious experience there. Yes. Did he ever talk with you about that much? Uh not a whole lot. My mother uh talked a little bit more about it. Uh, he had an injury, which uh, you know became a lifelong injury for him. But uh, 
they met before the war, and uh, when he came back, she said he was hampered by you know some of the physical injuries that he had, but uh, he wanted to have that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take his family overseas. Okay. What was it that he did as a civil servant? Uh, I can't say a lot about it because uh, he was a civilian, but he was in the uh, uh, what you would call disaster control arm of the Department of Defense. Okay. And that's about all I, I, I want to say about it. Okay. I'll tell you more off mic, but uh, I can't say anything more about it than that at this okay. point. Okay. Well, what I'm really interested in in this experience and why I wanted to start with Germany is because that's an unusual experience as a teenager, you're going to another country, obviously being uh, a military kid, that's kind of a common story, but your dad had a different a different experience there. And then I'm curious what your experience was to leave Aurora, Colorado, move over for, it sounds like, a few years to Germany. And those are some pretty critical years as well as a high schooler. How did you fit in? Who were you surrounded by? Like, just what was that experience for you? So, first of all, I want to clarify, he was a civilian. So, he had a civilian designation. Sure. Uh, although, uh, we had all the benefits of the uh, military uh, personnel. And um, I think it was an enlightening experience to live in another country and underst- and learn another culture. And the uh, families there and kids were, were fairly close because we were Americans at that time. I think the United States had about a half million Americans stationed in Germany and throughout bases in Europe and Germany. So it was just like a small town, uh, you know, in a within a country. An American town? Were you primarily surrounded by fellow Americans and American students? Only on the base. We lived in a uh, German town, Bitburg, uh, Germany is the name of the town. Okay. You happen, I realized by the timing of what you uh, experienced over there, it happened to be when my dad was over there, he had been drafted during the Vietnam era and was stationed in Germany. My oldest brother was born there as well. So mm-hmm. in my mind, as I'm preparing to have this conversation with you, there are some, I guess, some some parallels in terms of family experience, although not my own personally. And I've always been curious about what their experience was. So I guess you can enlighten me a little bit on that just through your own Sure. Again, I think uh, with the number of Americans overseas, um, you know, it compared now to a medium-sized, you know, city, half a million people, but there were probably a dozen or more uh, American bases stationed throughout Germany. We had our own high school athletic league and traveled. Uh, The recent, you know, Salida High School basketball team reminded me a lot of that experience, you know, going to a championship. In my senior year, we actually won the uh, European Eusdesia Championship for the uh, league that I was in. Okay. Uh, What were you playing? Basketball. Okay. Yeah. That was my primary sport as well. Okay. Did you play others, or was basketball really your, you know, for me, it was my love. Is that something that you really focused on? I I focused on that. I played football my senior year, but basketball got me a partial scholarship back to the States to attend Western State uh, at that time, college. Okay. Is that now Western Colorado? That's Western Colorado University, yes. In Gunnison. Yes. Uh Okay. Okay. Well, something else about that time period, if you don't mind hanging out there with me for a little bit more is that we are talking about the 60s. We're talking about um, a pretty significant time in American history. We're talking about the civil rights era. Besides the Vietnam era, there was a lot going on socially, politically, culturally. And I wonder how that experience was for you, or were you maybe a little removed from it by being in Germany as opposed to 
continental U.S. surrounded by it. Yeah, I think we were somewhat uh, removed uh, from it uh, for the two years that I spent over there. And then I went back uh, uh, for a summer after my freshman year in uh, college. But um, I think it, in some ways insulated me from what was happening, you know, in the United States. But I remember the uh, early in 1968 with the assassination of Martin Luther King and then followed by the uh, you know, assassination of uh, Robert Kennedy. You know, that's when it kind of hit you that, you know, things were real and you were growing up and you had to process and understand, you know, what was actually happening, not only to you as a, a youth, but also the country. Yeah, sure. Um Prior to your going to Germany, back when you were in Aurora, Colorado, you had described to me previously that that actually was more of a rural type area at the time. Yeah, it absolutely was. We were uh, on South Chambers Road at the time, which was the farthest eastern point of the metro area. So I think I mentioned to you, I grew up on a five-acre farm, went to a two-room country schoolhouse, and... uh, that also uh, was impressionistic. Yeah, it, well, it, tell me about that. What was the impression that that made? Because that two, when you say two-room schoolhouse, that sounds very old school, very small. And I'm just curious, what you know, what were the grade ranges, for example, in those two rooms? What was that like to be out? I mean, I'm I'm really picturing almost little house on the prairie, just so remote um, for two rooms. That's that's exactly right. As a matter of fact, it got modernized when I was there because we had indoor plumbing. Uh, I started there and had uh, two outhouses uh, when I uh, went there. But uh, I think the junior high and high school were in the second room and the grade school was in the first room. And uh, I remember vividly, um, and this is uh, something that affected me too. I, I got moved over a row. I didn't understand exactly what was happening, but I skipped a grade because I took uh, all of the teaching for one grade in a half a year. So I moved over a grade and got skipped. So I graduated from high school at 16. Okay. You know, that really makes it sound like you're older than I think you are. You know, at least in my mind, when I think of a two-room schoolhouse and <laughs> outhouses, I mean, that sounds like something that might have been 100, 120, 100, uh, you know, 50 years ago. And, of course, you're not that old. Yeah. No, this was recent. I think the thing that people miss a lot of times is that was rural living. You know, I think I mentioned to you that, you know, I'm a, I grew up as a farm kid. You know, I was the oldest. So, you know, I milked the cow, you know, uh, slopped the hogs, fed the chickens. And uh, that was just part of the way that you grew up in that, you know, rural area of uh Eastern, what was then Eastern metropolitan area of uh, Denver. How often did you get into Denver? Every weekend, because my mother's relatives, most of them all moved to uh, Denver um, during that period of time of, you know, me growing up. And, you know, there's a great story behind that. But uh, so I I had both an urban and a rural, you know, kind of living experience growing up. Well, I am curious about that story. Go ahead and, well, it's, it's and let a, me know. It's a great, you know, kind of American story. You know, part of it is, uh, you know, um, I think more traditional, you know. But I had an uncle that came out of the South. My mother was from Beaumont, Texas, came out of the South in the 30s, hopped trains. They would call him a hobo now. Mm-hmm. But he finally settled down in Cheyenne, Wyoming. 
And uh, my mother wasn't able to attend college uh, in that town because they didn't admit blacks to the local college. So uh, he decided, not because of her, but because of his experience in settling in Cheyenne, that he would give every one of his relatives a one-way ticket out of the South to Cheyenne, Wyoming. Wow. And so uh, he managed to bring most of the family to Cheyenne, Wyoming. And then when my mother and father married and went to Denver, they helped migrate to Denver. So I have a substantial number of cousins uh, in uh, Denver. Okay. I'm curious for somebody who was hopping trains, what was it that he did that he was able to then afford those tickets to bring along the family? Well, a lot of the uh, history of especially, you know, the railroad and uh, African Americans uh, was that they were porters on trains. I had two uncles that were porters on the railroad and you know, landed in Denver and stayed at the Rotsonian and on Welton Street. But um, the trains uh, afforded people an opportunity to, um, you know, travel and also earn a decent living. As a matter of fact, one of our most famous civil rights laws was a result of a, a, of a train, an African-American trying to ride on a train, and that was overturned by the famous Brown versus Board of Education decision. So, okay. uh, you know, railroads are part of the fabric of this country, which has made it great, but it also afforded African-Americans an opportunity to travel and have some commerce. Okay. When you would go into the city, you said that you had kind of the rural and urban experience yes. as a kid. And I wonder what that was like for you. Um, maybe you got enough dose of both that you didn't think much about it. But I know for me growing up in a small rural town in Missouri that I was sort of envious of the cousins who lived in bigger places and envious of anybody who did, really. I was curious about what that was like, the opportunities, the adventures, the dangers even. I mean, the trouble I could have gotten into as a kid, whatever. Did you have sort of that city mouse, country mouse sort of thing going on? Were you envious at all? Or do you really just feel like, oh, I'm kind of cool with both. I'm comfortable in both. Yeah, I think uh, that frankly helped uh, prepare me to transition very easily between cultures. I mean, you know, the when you talk about a farm kid, you know, uh, milking cows and slopping hogs and feeding chicken, chickens and putting up fencing and growing a garden, you know, everybody can relate to that rural story. But I also, like I said, had relatives that lived in Denver in an urban setting. And so uh, that was just, you know, part of the, the upbringing. I think it brought to mind family and the importance of family and the importance of how families kind of influence your behavior, you know, growing up, it help shape and mold you. I, I was just thinking about family and just how much you've already kind of related the influence of family, not only your father and his having, you know, been a World War II veteran, a civil servant, all these sort of things, the farm structure, cousins, aunts, uncles, there's a lot of family you've already referred to, which makes me wonder um, about if you'll elaborate on more the influence of that in general and what family means to you and has meant to you throughout your life? Well, I think um, family provides that, you know, framework and structure and probably a lens through which you view society. And it's probably, uh, to some extent, the breakdown of the family that's contributing to some of our current, you know, social ills and problems. But, you know, I feel blessed to have had you know, a family that allowed me to excel with, you know, whatever gifts that, you know, I was provided with. And so I think family and family structure is important and having an extended family of 
cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents that helped influence your behavior is vitally important. Did they keep you on the straight and narrow? Well, absolutely. Uh, back <laughs> then, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, that was, uh, you just understood, you know, the things that were expected of you, especially if you were African-American and had opportunities. And that was what my, you know, father provided me with him being able to finish college on the GI Bill and having a professional job, you know, in the uh, Department of Defense and being able to provide things for his family that, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, wouldn't have had the opportunity to do. Did that feel like pressure at all to you that these opportunities were there for you, that you needed to be able to follow along with what your father had said as an example, taking advantage of the GI Bill, getting education, having this solid career? Did it ever feel like, um, you know, maybe this is too much, you know, pressure that you're having to follow through and, and sustain these expectations. I don't, I think they were opportunities uh, and expectations that went along, you know, with the opportunities. Um, and I think that, again, is creating an environment that allows you to succeed you if you have the will and desire to succeed. So um, I didn't, didn't feel the pressure other than to, you know, toe the line, uh, you know, in terms of uh, how you, how you were, ex were to treat other people and how you were expected to be treated. So I think sometimes it's that expectation to toe the line that, at least for me, sometimes creates a little energy where I want to buck that. It's like, well, wait a second. This is where I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm feeling kind of pushed in a way where I need to be perfect or I need to succeed in a certain way. And I say that with um, this background. My parents were both teachers, and of course, they expected these great grades. And I had older brothers, and they got great grades, and they succeeded in all these things. So as I'm the younger brother coming along, I'm thinking, you know, this is an awful lot to live up to. So that's the lens that I'm looking through when I ask you this question, I think. Yeah. Well, I think the only expectation I didn't meet of my dad is I grew my hair. I had a, an, af <laughs> an afro in the late 60s that uh, he wasn't too pleased with. But, you know, other than that, I was a college kid who got decent grades and, you know, maintained an athletic scholarship and proceeded to, you know, get through college. Yeah. So let's let's go on with that path then, because you did... You studied, I believe, psychology in undergrad, but then would go on to a master's degree in public administration. You would get a law degree. Um, so obviously very highly educated and across a range of um, you know, subject matter. And then you would go into a career that likewise, you know, like your father, was government-oriented. So did you feel an encouragement from your parents that that was a path to take? Did you just appreciate maybe what you observed of your father having worked for the government and say, there are things I can do here to serve my community. Or, you know, I don't want to put the words in your mouth. What what was the appeal of such an education and career path for you? Well, I think if you're a product of the 60s, which I was, the late 60s, it was curiosity. You know, there were all these things that were opening up. There were uh, events that were taking place that uh, you just were curious about and wanted to know more about and, and uh, to some extent, you know, be a, a part of. So I think curiosity was the main thing, but I think the upbringing and the education, you know, provided the foundation for that. What was it you were curious about in particular? What are some things that stood out from that time that you just, you knew you wanted to pursue? 
I think for me, I grappled with, you know, my own identity to some extent, you know, as an African-American male in the late 60s, you know, in the civil rights movement and the black power movement that was part of that and the women's movement, which came on shortly after that in Vietnam and the protests. And, you know, I made a conscious decision at the time to work for change in the system from the inside and not from the outside. But, you know, I became very well read and uh, a lot of the, um, you know, activists at the time in the civil rights movement. And, and that kind of stayed with me. But, you know, I'm a person that likes to see change. And I think that was in honor of my dad's military background and experience uh, from the inside of the system rather than, you know, beating on it from the outside. So would it have been disrespectful in your mind or in his maybe had you been a protester and protesting, say, the Vietnam War or trying to fight things um, in that way on the street versus within the system like you're describing? Well, I think the biggest protester my dad was wearing an afro. So, you know, after you get by that, you know, there's uh, uh, not a whole lot, but there's not a whole lot more to say. But again, you know, I maintained good grades in college and got through college and they valued education. So they were proud of the fact that I managed to complete my education and then go on to pursue higher education. What was it within the system that you were focusing on? Um, I know that you were involved in labor relations. There was a time when you were involved uh, for the state of Colorado as the civil rights director. I'm not doing your career path justice mm -hmm. when there's a lot of years of work there. I know you were in San Francisco, Oakland, Denver. You know, there's a lot there. So I'll just let you speak to whatever pieces of that you want. But I'm curious what within the system you were focused on overall. I think change and change for the, the hopefully the betterment of society and also for individuals you know um, I was able to help a lot of people not in, not only in my role as a, uh, a HR director but just you know being the first African-American in a f lot of different roles I was able to be a role model I think for some people but more importantly I was kind of that agitator on the inside of the system because I had a lot of education and a lot of knowledge and I think people welcomed me and kind of took me under their wing and taught me how the system worked and, and what needed to be changed. So, you know, I've got a lot of that on my resume, too. I never worked for more than five years in a job until I got here and uh, doing economic development. Was that by chance or was that a choice where you're actively saying, you know what, if I've stayed more than five years, I've maybe been too long in one place? That was uh, by choice. I, you know, I, that's because I went in to get things done. I didn't go in to collect a paycheck or, you know, a salary or a retirement, you know, I was hired typically in jobs that nobody else wanted to do. <laughs> and uh, I enjoyed the ability to succeed and have some measure of success in those jobs. Okay. When you were dealing with uh, civil rights as director, again, for the state of Colorado, first of all, what period of time was that? And then what was, I guess, the mission, whether that was personal or actually as it was given to you, by, I don't know, is that the governor who says, this is what I want you to accomplish? Yeah, even though I'm not a governor's appointee, I think part of the irony of my civil rights work was under the Bill Owens administration, who, you know, people viewed, I think, as, you know, conservative. But he and I had a relationship uh, even before he became governor, and we knew each other. I was the director of the state uh, employee organization, so, you know, I was very political at the time. But I think we kind of had an understanding that uh, he would allow me to 
to do my thing, you know, within kind of the framework that he set out. But I think for the Civil Rights Agency, there was a lot accomplished in a fairly short period of time. We were the first, I think, civil rights agency in the country to automate our records. So uh, we did away with paper filing of documents uh, during my time. Uh, at the beginning of the um, the the uh, you know crisis and housing crisis in 2008, we helped investigate and prosecute one of the most uh, you know um, serious cases of housing fraud in the country. And so um, I always viewed his and his administration as kind of hands off. You know, we knew kind of where the boundaries were, but I got a fair amount of support in allowing me to advance you know, the cause of civil rights and also the agency. Some people would disagree with that. We closed some offices, but when Bill Ritter was elected governor, who I grew up with on that five-acre farm in Aurora, uh, we opened them. So, you know, I think there's a lesson there. Okay. When we say civil rights, I tend to think especially racially, but also, you know, if we think contemporarily now, we're talking about transgender rights, we're talking about um, the issues with legislation and the Supreme Court and abortion. There's all kinds of angles on what civil rights, I think, contains. But given your experience with it, maybe you have a definition of what all that might encompass and what it all it was you were looking at um, to affect change. Yeah, I think it has. It's a fairly narrow definition in my mind. You know, I stay within the uh, parameters of the law. And certainly sex, which has morphed into gender, you know, is a protected category. But I think the big misunderstanding that people have about civil rights is civil rights is for all people. And when we provide civil rights to some, it really is for the betterment of all. And there are numerous instances I can cite, you know, for that. And I just think it's uh, kind of gotten off track like a lot of things have in society. But, you know, I'm proud of the work I did, and I'm proud of this country for what it's been able to do, you know, with civil rights. We are that beacon of hope and light for the rest of the world in terms of how we get things done. Can you be more specific on the civil rights and what that includes? So for my own education here and understanding, when you say it's a little more narrow and within the law, what what are the specifics that yeah. are included there? Well, the law defines, uh, you know, five specific categories in the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, I dealt with employment and housing and public accommodation, but race, sex, age, uh, creed, color, ancestry, religion, veteran status, you know, is a protected uh, category. So those are the, the ones that create the framework for the legal aspects of civil rights. But uh, they protect all people, not just people of a certain race or, or gender. And my point would be it ensures protection for people regardless of race, color, sex, creed, et cetera. And so I think people tend to apply it narrowly, uh, you know, by identifying people a certain way and say, well, it only applies to black people or it only applies to, you know, Native Americans or Mexicans. That's not true. And even we had a, a case that was one of the first in the country that morphed the idea that when the Civil Rights Act was passed to include sex, which was kind of by accident, and there's a story there, but um, it morphed to include gender, which then uh, gave uh, people with a different sexual orientation some protection. And I, we actually had a case in Colorado that was one of the uh, first cases to do that. Okay. So if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like when we use the phrase civil rights, what you think people often interpret it to mean is, oh, well, that means rights for a black person or whoever of a specific category 
But really what we're saying is, well, no, it's for all rights. So that if there is a white person who is getting offended by civil rights referring to something, we'll know it's actually for all of us and that that has led to confusion or political differences. Yeah. And I, uh, that's, I, I think exactly what I'm talking about. You know, we've uh, handled cases. I remember a 68 year old white uh, male who was laid off from his job and being one of the top performers who came to us and said, you know, I'm not ready to quit, but they fired me. And uh, we managed to help him get his job back. Um, or, you know, a person who announced that uh, he was going to have a sex change, uh, had worked for a company for 15 years, and then uh, six weeks later was fired. Uh, and, you know, one of my bright investigators who was waiting for the results of his bar exam uh, decided that, hey, I think he was terminated on the basis of sex. And that is what has evolved into the understanding now that, you know, sex does apply to sexual orientation and the law has been amended to, to do that. And housing is another one and, and also public accommodation, being able to go into a restaurant regardless of your uh, race or sex. So, you know, it's, it's broad. But those are the parameters and kind of the guardrails, you know, that we have in this society that make us unique, I think, in the world in terms of how we – have come together as a society with a lot of people from different places. I don't know if in what I'm observing here is about you as a person, a personality, as much as maybe it's your expertise, decades of education and experience, but you seem to have a rather objective and reasonable, rational sort of perspective on this. And I think that that stands out to me in this moment because well, probably I'm, I'm looking you know, through my own emotions, but also that what we are living in right now in our society is very heightened emotionally, politically, in the culture wars and so on. And I wonder about your lens on everything overall of what you're seeing in the world that we're all seeing. And if I'm, it, that is, if I'm assessing you in a way that you feel is fair and true, you're a rational, objective viewer of it. Well, I think with age comes some wisdom. Okay. And I think uh, the life experiences also help shape that. And like I said, uh, you know, being raised as a country kid, you know, uh, those values that you have and understanding hard work and how, you know, you you basically earn your living from the land. You know, my dad used to uh, sell corn on the weekends. We'd take five-pound uh, five bushels of corn and sell them in East Denver. I remember that. And I remember hard work. I think that's the other thing is that um, to some extent um, we have to redefine work, but I think uh, people have lost the meaning of you know a, a day's work and, and hard work and what that really means. And I think we have ourselves to blame for some of that because as we did better is in growing up, you know, we gave our kids you know everything. We didn't have that. And uh, I think we've lost that. But I have hope for this generation and uh, of women participating, you know, in society. And so I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm always a cup half full kind of guy. Okay. I want to step back a little bit, back to your parents and influences that they might have had. Because we've talked about civil rights. You've helped uh, define and, and give me some parameters on this. And I wonder, I'm always curious with people. What influenced them? What gave them the philosophies, the the wisdom, the the worldviews that they have with civil rights and this being part of your career and the things that you have done in your life? I wonder what was maybe talked about back then in those 60s when you were a kid and in the 50s, younger, if we go even earlier when you were growing up on the farm before going to Germany. 
were these things being talked about? Were the, was the news being talked about? You mentioned Robert Kennedy being assassinated, Martin Luther King Jr. being assassinated. Was this level of conversation around the dinner table with your parents, were they educating and influencing you in terms of civil rights matter? This is something we fight for. Well, I think, frankly, it was more fundamental and basic than uh, civil rights. They were both both born and raised in the South in segregated Texas. Um, they saw Colorado as an opportunity to have um, some experiences that you know weren't available to them, and I think that's what they wanted to provide to their kids. So education was important. I think the other thing they told us and taught us, uh, and I think. Uh, model for us is that your race was never to be an excuse for not accomplishing something. So as bad as it might be or sound or the, the way you were treated, there was a certain way that you were supposed to behave and the expectations were you were going to succeed because you'd been provided with opportunities that their their parents and their brothers and sisters weren't. And so you were to make the most of those opportunities. Was that something extraordinary about your parents and what they believed, how they worked hard, served in the world, served you as parents? Was that extraordinary? I think so, but I think it was born to some extent. This is going to sound a little trite out of the greatness of this country. My mother was a registered nurse, so uh, she worked you know, as a, as a nurse. My dad uh, eventually got his degree and worked in uh, defense, but they knew that they were the first of their generation in their family to be able to succeed. You know, their parents were, weren't able to. So especially on my dad's side, all of his brothers and sisters, you know, went to college and the expectation was that, you know, you were going to help the family continue to, you know, move, move ahead by, first of all, you know, going to school and getting that college education. And then secondly, you know, modeling that behavior for your kids and, and the family. That sounds extraordinary to me as someone who can only know by learning through history classes or something from that time period. We're talking, again, your father was in World War II. So we're saying the first half of the 20th century. This is pre-civil rights legislation. Racism still exists. So obviously it did then. And there was separation and all these things. For them to have the education levels and to work in the world in the way they did, can you, if you don't mind, educate me a little bit maybe on that history and why they were able to do these things at a time when that wasn't exactly widespread? Well, see, I I, I don't take issue with it, but I, I, would, you know, I would say that my parents were no different than any other post-World War II families. Uh, some perhaps with different ethnicities and backgrounds that wanted to have the opportunity to do better than their parents had done. And that, that applies to poor white people or, you know, uh, people of different descents, Native Americans, Italians, Hispanics, all of those families who had somebody go to war and came out of the war wanted to benefit uh, their you know, family for generations to come. And that's what we've lost sight of. This country has given us, I would say, a fairly equal opportunity to do that. Now, the treatment that people receive, you know, is different than the opportunity. And that's a distinction I think we need to continue to make. So I'm wondering where you feel like we stand in these uh, efforts now uh, with the country. You've referred to some of it maybe. But if we think of... Um, 
the more recent years issues. George Floyd, of course, is the biggest name that gets thrown out from the past few years when it comes to issues with the police. We've had protests. We've had the rise of white nationalism or the reemergence of it. It would seem there's a lot going on politically, again, in the culture wars. Do you have a sense of what it was you have spent years working for in terms of those rights and you know, I, I'm not sure where to go with the question other than to get your insights because you have that background and yet your parents and everything you're talking about, it seems to me you have a, a rather um, all-American opportunity sort of perspective as well. Sure. And it may not be one that uh, people share in, but part of the problem today is we're talking past each other. We're not listening to each other, you know, and I was an adjunct professor for about 20 years at the University of Colorado where, you know, I taught a lot in diversity. And I remember one class making a statement that, you know, was provocative because I think that's what academics is, you know, supposed to do. And I said, you know, I think the civil rights laws need to include, and they do now, you're starting to see that, but I think it's being weaponized to some extent. The fact that, you know, uh, my two boys, deserve the right not to be discriminated against. Now, do they deserve the right, you know, to further affirmative action in the sense that they got an opportunity because the opportunity I was given, but that poor white kid who's going to be the first in his family from a from a from having lived in a trailer park to go to college, I think that kid deserves a shot. And that's what affirmative action ought to be talking about. It's all it, it not all about, but it's become more about class in this country. And we're not talking about that, and I think uh, that's led to some of the division that uh, we're experiencing. We're, talk we're talking past each other and ignoring the root of the problem, and the root of the problem is class, I think. Uh, I think that's why the laws need to continue to evolve. What do you think we can do to improve that listening to each other and that where I, I th a word that often comes to mind for me and in conversations on this podcast is empathy to yeah actually listen to each other, believe in what the other person is saying as valid, and, and actually just listen as opposed to be so quick to dismiss. I think empathy, I think understanding, I think also understanding uh, how to promote resiliency. One of the things we've talked about in this conversation is the fact that I have a certain level of resilience, uh, not only because of my education, but because of my upbringing, which was to take care of each other. Uh, and I can remember times when we were snowed in on South Chambers Road and one of the neighbors getting a tractor and collecting five bucks from everybody and driving to the store because nobody could get out to buy groceries and coming right back down, you know, South Chambers Road delivering groceries on that tractor. And that was, a, you know, a cattle uh, owner, you know, the branch uh, next door to us. But that's where people really in this society, I think, need to come together and stop picking each other apart. I feel like in the last several years where some of these changes we've had happen in the country, um, they've highlighted what we often refer to as division. It seems like we've gained ground in some ways and lost ground in others. I wonder, though, if this is an opportunity for us to assess where we are and maybe try more of the things that you're referring to. Come back to that sort of, you know, what we need to care about those right around us. Sure. I have a great exercise. and I know we're getting close to time here, but uh, I use this in uh, my uh, law enforcement class because I taught in the executive criminal justice program. 
you know, and wannabe police chiefs and how to handle diversity before it became, you know, such an issue. And, you know, law enforcement and cops are a tough group, right? You're sitting there teaching them, and here's this African-American guy telling them about, you know, diversity and that kind of thing. And so they had their arms crossed in class. And the first night I knew I didn't, you know, reach them. And about two hours into the uh, second day of classes, I, I – looked up and I said, you know, we got to talk about this subject because everybody has one in their family, right? They don't know how to deal with it. So everybody has somebody that's different in their family. (laughs) And I tell the story of our family picnic and the first white guy who was dating my uh, cousin's daughter came to the picnic and I was ashamed of my family because I didn't know, they didn't know what to say or how to welcome that person. But everybody's got somebody in their family that's different. And that's the same, I think, uh, lesson that we need to apply to get, getting along with each other. We're all different. You know, that's what makes us unique and uh, what, what I think, frankly, is uh, one of the more exciting things about this society is that it allows you to be different. But, you know, we can't use our differences as an excuse not to get along. The differences end up adding sort of some seasoning to, I think, what otherwise, if we start with, well, here's what we all have in common. Right. And for some reason, we're skipping past all of that, or we're allowing ourselves, I think, to be persuaded that that's not the truth. Right. I think that's exactly right, which is why I am um, pleased and excited to see women uh, having and being given more of a role in society, because uh, I think they bring a different perspective and a fresh energy you know, to the table, just like the different generations. You know, I'm I'm curious, and again, curiosity I think is a big thing about what uh, Generation X interprets. You know, this society's problems to be versus Y and NZ coming up behind it, and what technology is doing to society. You know, we've got to, I think, be aware of those changes that are occurring. You know, all around us, and I think part of that awareness and understanding is just being able to talk to people and listen. Curiosity is a big word for me, uh, and you had mentioned it long ago when it comes to your education and what you were interested in coming out of high school, and I I think that that's something that needs to be cultivated in people as well, and that also has to do with our relationships. Mm-hmm. We have to be curious about each other, including the things that are different, be mm-hmm. curious to know what we have as common ground, maybe as a starting point, but I think so much starts with that curiosity. Yeah, and I think, you know, discussing the the real problems we have, you know, with educating our kids and dealing with some of the issues we have in society related to homelessness and poverty is a big one, you know, for me. So um, I think we have to have more of a, a problem-solving and inclusive mindset about how we, you know, address these issues and these problems. Problem solving had just come to mind, too, with the word curiosity, because we have to be curious to figure out what are better ways we can do things, or just plain to solve what we are unsure about anyway. And right now, I think we're approaching a lot of things with certainty. (laughs) And and it's not necessarily founded on knowledge or experience or anything. Yeah. And we're talking past each other. We're not talking to one another. And I think the beauty of this community is that um, there's just a lot of different opportunities and ways to get involved and to listen to people. And I've made the remark, you know, that as a community, the county tends to pull pull above its weight. I mean, you look around at other counties, they don't have, I think, the richness, not so much of diversity, you know, in terms of race and, and gender, but of thought and of opportunity and people trying to help one another. You know, I've been impressed since I've been here the people that will volunteer their time. I, I think that uh, is extraordinary in terms of things getting done in little pockets of 
people, you know, like Ojeva Negro, you know, running a fundraiser for Ukraine. I mean, you know, that's just something they took on, and I happen to know the owners. But that's just one example, and there are hundreds of examples happening every year in, in this county. I mentioned earlier that you had lived in a number of cities, mm-hmm. so Denver, San Francisco, Oakland. And I am curious, what drew you to this area, Chafee County? You returned to rural, um, and and I know that that was, you know, you've had a role, you had it for many years until retiring within the last couple of years for uh, the Economic Development Corporation here in Chafee County. But what was it that drew you out here in the first place? And then you can go in to tell me about the EDC and what your work was there, too. Well, I think it was three things. Uh, number one, Amica's uh, Pizzeria. <laughs> you know, that was, uh, you know, something that we were, were recommended to go uh visit, you know, uh, in our afternoon of a couple's retreat that we had and, you know, the brewery. Then number two, I walked across the street and at the Mountain Mail, they had a poster of Richie Havens at the fairgrounds for 20 bucks. So I knew it had to be somewhat enlightened to, you know, have somebody like Richie Havens. So the younger (laughs) generation may not appreciate who he was, but he was a product of the 60s. And then I think F Street, you know, and uh, it reminded me of that small town in Aurora, which it was at the time. You know, and Gambles, uh, a lot of people don't remember Gambles and the two brothers that, you know, ran Gambles. It was just like a, you know, Mayberry in a small town. And it was just that small town welcoming feel that, you know, wasn't pretentious. I make the point, and this is no disrespect, you know, to the other towns along I-70, is that, you know, we're um, a town first and with a rich history. And the resort part of it, you know, comes comes after that. Was it a return to something simpler and quieter like maybe it, you grew up with? It, it did. It, you know, it reminded me of the Fox Aurora, which is the theater we used to go to in Aurora on Saturday mornings while my parents, you know, did their errands. And, uh, you know, it reminded me of that. Um, I think uh, the other piece of that is people coming here for a lot of different reasons, but um, I think a lot of it was just to live in a kind of a, a peaceful but nurturing environment where you could be kind of what you wanted to be and, you know, be as quirky as you wanted to be or as quiet or get involved in whatever you wanted to get involved in. Okay. Let's go then to the professional side of this. That when you, Again, you are executive director of uh, the EDC, the Economic Development Corporation here in Chaffee County. And I'm curious what your work was, what you saw the vision of that to be. Um, and was that for... I mean, a good 10? 12 years. years. 12 years. Yeah. It wasn't my vision. It was the vision of, I think, a dozen very successful business people in the community who came together and said, we've got to get some things done, you know, in this community if uh, we're going to continue to to grow, you know, and to thrive. And uh, they came together and created the organization, self-funded it with some support from the county and some of the local governments, but they wanted it run as a business um, organization. And they wanted to be able to do things uh, in this, at the speed of business. And so the first thing that I think uh, is still to this day uh, foundation is the technology they brought in terms of creating a company to bring broadband or internet connectivity better than what we had to allow businesses to grow. And with that, I think you've seen the the benefits of it, and we continue to grow. But without internet connectivity, they realized you weren't going very far. I remember one of the board members saying there's this thing called Netflix coming, which is going to eat up 
you know, four megs of bandwidth, which is about all you got at the time. And so we knew we had to do better than that. But they supported me in doing that. Uh, Climax uh, came up with a big grant to have me learn all I could about broadband. And eventually we helped uh, attract a company to come to the area, which was Colorado Central Telecom, which has now been uh, sold to Carlin Walsh and is now Aristotle Communications. And that's a foundation to me of everything that's kind of going on here because it allows people to come here and work. And I think a lot of the successful business people, and I cite Charlie Chupp as one of them, you know, with his Fading West factory, uh, as an example of that, Dr. Mark Muller and Topogen was the first bio chemist and one of three wet labs in the state that's located at the Buena Vista Airport. And you have dozens of stories like that of small businesses that have come here and are flourishing. Well, then apparently I need to thank you personally as well and for my, uh, for my household yeah. because the internet that is here was, I, I'd have to admit that living in more populated areas for many, many years, when we considered moving out uh, to this county to a rural area, which I have not lived in a rural area since I was a kid, I had come to take for granted internet and that we had all the capacities that we would need for anything we wanted, whether that was to stream Netflix or to run a business. And so when we learned when we came out here that that was not something we could take for granted, our timing was perfect because it allows us, me and my wife, to work remotely from this county and to still... Uh, be part of a community like this while engaging with the sort of work and careers that that we can from afar. Had that not existed, we couldn't exist here. Yeah, well, and I think the other part of that is the education in our schools. The, the Buena Vista School District was the last school district to be hooked up on what was a, I'd say, marginally successful effort back uh, ten years ago called EagleNet, but e- but the uh, Buena Vista School District tied into that internet connectivity, so they've got some of the best broadband of rural communities, you know, anywhere in the state. Salida, because it's on Highway 50, you know, has a, a great connection. But the more important thing is our kids, and are they getting the same level and value of education as a kid from you know a metro area, so to speak? That's what we have to be concerned about and keep up with, along with telehealth, for example, in our hospitals. Those are obviously really big ideas and very important, but it also occurs to me that in the last few years, we had such an extraordinary experience with the pandemic and kids being out of school, and a lot of things had to happen online what would have happened? I mean, this can be a rhetorical question, or you can speak to it if you have thoughts, but it's just what would have happened or did happen probably elsewhere in this country if internet was not a possibility in rural areas, but kids weren't allowed to be together with their teachers. You know, there's there are ramifications. There are some dominoes to fall from that sort of consequence. Well, I think it's been both a good news, bad news story. And Speaking with one of the school superintendents, uh, it allowed us to remain connected, but there's nothing like that social connection. And some would argue that social media, you know, has done more to affect negatively youth mental health. And we do have a youth mental health crisis in this county and uh, around the country on a local chapter of the El Pomar Foundation. And that's one of the big issues that we're struggling with is youth mental health. But it's been both good and bad. But you have to, I think, make it a net positive in terms of just maintaining connectivity uh, throughout the county. Okay. And also search and rescue, I know, has used drones and internet connectivity in a lot of their work. And that's a big part of the uh, industry here. So 
if there is something beyond this connectivity that we're talking about, is there something that is essential to sustainable economic growth in an area like this, um, setting that, that really big piece that we've already talked about aside? I think we have a significant senior population that um, is that is either going to age in place or age out of this county. We're one of the few counties in the state where you can actually measure the impact of the senior population. I think we have to be concerned about that. I think we also have to be concerned about uh, people being able to afford to live here. Um, so affordable housing is a big issue because those are the people that you know provide the services that this community you know has come to depend on. So that's a a huge issue, I think. And I think the the community, the counties, the local government, the county, the local governments are doing what they can, but we need to continue to uh, invest in making this place affordable or continue to be affordable. You retired, like I said earlier, within the last couple of years, year yes. and a half or so uh-huh. uh, from the EDC, but it, you don't strike me as someone who is just sitting still, nope. staying idle. What is it that you're working on now? What's keeping you busy? Um, I'm working uh, on a couple of telecommunications projects. Uh, the uh, federal government has made more money available than we did in the 30s to electrify the country. To, and so this is uh, promoting broadband productivity. So I'm working with a couple of companies to make sure the local communities get representative and served, uh, represented and served in that regard. And then, like I said, I'm working with a young entrepreneur who's uh, got kind of a game changer of an idea related to housing that I can't say much about now, but uh, I think is going to be a game changer not only in the community, but you know around the state in terms of affordable housing. So to call you retired, does that seem I not say, really accurate? I, that's true. I'd say semi, and I just realized, you know, I've been working since I was six years old, you know, on a farm. So <laughs> I, I'm going to continue to work. So semi is probably the best way to describe it. Well, I think of, I think of this in terms of life work then, right? As opposed to just career, and there's that chapter, and then we flip a switch, and now we're retired, which means we just fish, or we, I don't know what, watch soap operas on TV, if, if those still exist. Um, if we look through that sort of perspective for you, if you were to boil down what has been your life's work, which is, again, continuing, and, and I'm, I'm going to guess it might always, what has been most essential to you? What has been the focus or the most important thing, whether that's philosophically um, to you in terms of your personal values? What is it that you have spent your life trying to contribute? I think helping people and communities achieve their goals. I, I think, you know, you boil it all down. And I thought about that, you know, question, you know, coming into the interview. But, you know, in a number of communities, I've been the first to do something. So they had a goal, you know, for example, in San Francisco of moving from a civil service environment to human resources. You know, I was the first human resources director for the city and county of San Francisco. So being the first uh, to do that and then along the way, you know, uh, supporting individuals who needed some counseling, needed some help, needed some connections. But yeah, that's that's it. Just helping individuals and communities achieve their goals. It's service. Yes. And it's interesting you were thinking about that and reflecting in your life in that way because I didn't give you that question in no. advance. You didn't know it was coming. No, that's that's who I am. 
Well, I appreciate talking with you, Wendell. Thanks for, you know, well, again, the internet Mm -hmm. service we all have here, but uh, also just for your time and sharing your insights. Yeah, happy to do that and uh, just uh, honored to be invited. So thank you very much. That was my conversation with Wendell Pryor. If what Wendell and I talked about here today sparked curiosity for you, you can learn more in this episode's show notes at wearechafee.org. If you have comments or know someone in Chafee County, Colorado, who I should consider talking with on the podcast, you can email us at info at Again, we invite you to rate and review the We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use with that functionality. We also invite you to tell others about the Looking Upstream podcast. Help us to keep growing community and connection through conversation. Once again, I'm Adam Williams, host, producer, and photographer. John Prey is engineer and producer. Thank you to KHIN 106.9 FM Community Radio, where we recorded today's conversation in Salida, Colorado, to Heather Gorby for graphic and web design, to Andrea Carlstrom, director of Chafee County Public Health and Environment, and to Lisa Martin, community advocacy coordinator for the We Are Chafee Storytelling Initiative. The We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast is a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority and it's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. You can learn more about the Looking Upstream podcast and related storytelling initiatives at wearechafee.org and on Instagram and Facebook at wearechafee. Lastly, thank you for listening, and remember, as we say here at We Are Chafee, be human, share stories.